All right, you guys, welcome back to the show. I have uh, like what I consider a great friend and a great mentor to me, uh, Brian Carroll, obviously a powerlifting champion, but uh, he helped me recover uh, and navigate the complicated landscape of low back, uh, low back pathologies. It must have been at least like three years ago to this point, and I decided to have him as a guest on my show. Uh, we'll be covering two different topics. Obviously, we'll be covering low back pathologies, but moreover, I wanted to um, talk to him about, you know, the not so glorious or the dark side of being a champion, because a lot of times people see, you know, that like four or five second clip of victory, you know, being number one, but then they don't see how the rest of the 99.9% .9 of the person's life is. And it might not be so glorious for most people once they find out what that is. So I guess if we can start like way back, you know, before you're a champion, and how you've progressed into even wanting to pursue that path and then kind of like go from there. Okay. So I started, I did my first competition in 1999. I was actually still in high school. We're around about the same age, aren't we? I just turned, I just turned 38. Okay. So I'm a little older. I'll be 42 in August. So, we're, But we still would have been in high school at the same time, approximately. So I graduated in 99 and we didn't have a weightlifting team then. Uh, the girls did, but we didn't. So I didn't get to get into weightlifting and such at high school competition like some people get to do. But I found it outside of high school and uh, my friend competed in bench meets and powerlifting and such. So what I did was um, I went with him to a competition one day and just jumped in the meet. And I think I benched 325 or 335 or something like that. And then I was hooked. And I was kind of ending my time with baseball at that point. So baseball is my entire life um, before weightlifting kind of took over. So from there, I kind of like put all my eggs into one basket, and that was becoming a gym rat, competing in, in powerlifting, um, all of my focus into that. And uh, that became my new baseball, you know, basically from 99 to 2020. That was my life. That's what I wanted to do. You know, I... Uh, endeavored to be the best that I could. That was my, you know, my, my everyday goal. And it was just a lot of waking up and doing the same thing every day for many, many years and making myself do things that I didn't want to do and eat some foods that I didn't want to sometimes. And yeah, I mean, it's not like the type of sacrifice in some ways that like a bodybuilder would have to have, but you have to stay consistent and you have to stay uh, within your weight class and you have to lift heavy a lot of the time. And with that, comes injuries and we'll get into that in a little bit but I consumed myself for over 20 years straight just trying to be the best powerlifter I could and, and pretty much um, nothing was off the table as far as that goes so I uh, I put everything into it and then by the time 2020 came around I wanted to do one more big thing and then just kind of quit and what was the big thing well I, I didn't know at the time but I just wanted to do something that I would be happy with and I'd hit a couple all-time world record squats and what an all-time world record is is regardless of federation or testing or where in the world it's the biggest squat ever done in that weight class so i was fortunate enough to be able to go out with not just the biggest squat in my weight class ever but it was the biggest squat or lift ever done in any competition so i was able to exceed the super heavyweights with the 1306 squat which was the first 1300 squat in competition so um with that, you know, I stepped away from powerlifting and now my focus is pretty much solely on, I lift light for myself now. I don't really lift heavy and I'm slowly tuning down and everything. 
But now my focus is on uh, helping other people with back injuries like yourself. We met a few years ago and uh, helping helping people avoid the injury. But when they do find the injury, helping them navigate it and understand that back injury isn't a life sentence for people. And uh, so if I wouldn't have had my injuries during the time of powerlifting, I wouldn't be able to help people now. So as the book um, says, Gift of Injury, that I wrote with Dr. McGill in 2017, that book about my process of rehabbing uh, is one of the best gifts for me because I learned so much during this time. And I was able to come back and hit that 1300 pound squat and go out on top. So I'm pretty fortunate and blessed as far as that goes, but it was a lot of hard work and a lot of downs, some ups, of course, otherwise I wouldn't have kept doing it. But yeah, the the, the higher the stakes are, the higher the low, the lower the lows are and the less high the highs are. There's just more and more at stake the longer you do it. And so it was just kind of time for me to get out of it. And I had twin girls born in 2020. So that's been a big focus of mine these days. And so my focus is being a husband and dad and a practitioner for the McGill method and helping as many people as possible these days. Well, can you go over on if it's even possible to be like a champion in a sustainable way these days? Can you go over the difficulties of that? Yeah. So if you're going to try to be the best at something, we, we know that it's it's going to be unhealthy mentally and physically at times. And it's it's a battle, you know? So I think that the people that um, want to be the best at something have to understand they're going to have to sacrifice some longevity and some potential health. And it got to the point where I just didn't want to do that anymore for, for such long periods of time. But one thing that I helped do to mitigate a lot of the damage, and I still had injuries, I still tore my bicep at the end, I still hurt my back in 2009, but I competed a whole lot. And the way I feel now is I don't have aches and pains. So I think I I would I would credit a lot of the 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 good that I feel right now for the times of having an off season and just coming off supplements, coming off the eating all the time, coming off the heavy training. And having three or four months out of the year where you just heal and work on your weak points, reduce the load down but be below 50%, build volume, build capacity, and just heal up, man. Kind of like what an NFLer would do in the offseason. They're not cracking heads the whole time in the offseason. They heal up a little bit. They work on weak points, whether it be running, conditioning, whether it be rehabbing an injury or just getting stronger. So I, I adopted an offseason a long time ago, and I think that saved me from being like really screwed up right now. But the champion's mindset is, is something that I had to kind of learn as I went. And uh, no one can kind of tell you like how to approach things when you want to be the best. But I made a lot of mistakes. I overcorrected at times where I would try to, I would do anything necessary to try to get stronger. But then sometimes I'd realize that more isn't better either. More training, more food, more supplements, right? It isn't always better either. So then I'd overcorrect sometimes do too little where I wouldn't recover or eat enough or take enough or whatever. So it was a constant battle. And I kind of figured it out at the end, you know, where I felt pretty good, you know, going, going into that last meet, but extreme power lifting with all the gear and the supplements and trying to lift all that crazy weight is definitely not healthy. But the way I was able to mitigate it is I kept my body weight down in the off season. I didn't go crazy with the supplements and I had times where I didn't train heavy. You have some people that train heavy all the time and they're not going to last 21 years. I can tell you that. And if I didn't have off seasons and times where I trained lighter and had good mentors, when I was younger, telling me not to train all the time, I wouldn't have lasted. 
So I'm 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 pretty unscathed overall, and I'm pretty fortunate for that. But you just don't know, man. Getting under the bar with even a thousand pounds, it wouldn't be much of a stretch to have a blood clot break loose or have a stroke or, or some kind of brain trauma or something. So I'm very fortunate that I never dealt with anything like that, too. But there's people that have. You get under the bar so much, man, they really destroy themselves. And some people really regret powerlifting because their body's so screwed up. I, I don't regret, I don't regret it at all. Some things I wish I could have done over and slowed down and enjoyed it more or been more thorough with it. But man, it's just a big learning experience. So for me, having as much balance as possible within reason is something that helped me. But you're trying to squat 1300 pounds, there's really not too much balance in that. And I'll be honest with you. So that's why I wanted to quit and get balanced out afterward before it was too late and I have a stroke or a heart attack or I mangle myself or, or something. It's because it's inevitable. You draw from the well so many times, eventually it's going to run dry and you're going to get, you're going to get something you don't want. So I was able to walk away from it before I really destroyed myself, thankfully. But I think some people have a hard time with that. They have a hard time stepping away from it, whether it be an MMA, whether it be in uh, like football or, or, or basketball. Uh, they have a hard time stepping away because that's their identity. So it was my identity for a long time, but uh, my identity now is just, um, it's not, it's not powerlifting anymore. I, I want to be the father, the husband, and uh, the coach helping people. Now I don't have to have the ego of, you know, I'm the strongest lifter or squatter or power lifter. That's all in the past, but you need the ego to be able to, hit lifts that most people think that you can't do. And at times you even question it. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot, there's a lot there, man, but you're not going to be balanced if you're trying to be the absolute best, but you can also not live in a, um, you know, live in your car and have, you know, barely enough money to eat because you're so focused on powerlifting. I don't think that's a good uh, extreme either. So yeah, you need some sort of balance to be able to stay, you know, available to be able to, to go and compete and such, but I, I it's hard. And it's going to be different for everybody. Well, how do you feel? How do you feel like the average person that's working like a 40 or 50 hour job that might be pretty taxing already, how they can kind of pursue, uh, get into powerlifting if they want to without burning themselves out because they're, it's a very, like, um, the sport seems to be like very taxing on the central nervous system quite a bit. And most people are already kind of operating in a state of exhaustion with poor sleep, poor diet, uh, a lot of stress at work, maybe not getting along with their coworkers or boss, et cetera, et cetera. And I feel like it's um, also not in tune with their body, you know, don't know how to listen to the pain teacher, et cetera, et cetera. So what kind of advice would you have for people, for people in that category? Well, start slow and uh, build a good foundation and uh, make sure that you 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 like it and want to do it. But, you know, going back to the stress thing, um, some people really pursue powerlifting because it's a great outlet for them to blow off steam. So initially it starts off as this great hobby. And then for some people, like it did for me, it just evolved into something that uh, consumed my life. So a lot of people, I think, could just kind of power lift and piddle with it and use it as a hobby, and it could be a great outlet for them. I mean, I think it's good for people to practice squatting, benching, deadlifting, and such, but with that is the shadow side. You know, you try to progress too quick. You don't have a good foundation. 
then you end up getting hurt. And then that complicates your entire life, your nine to five job, your family, you can't power lift if you're starting to fall in love with it. So it's important for those people that are just starting out that have a full-time job. Remember, you're not getting paid to power lift. Number one, I hardly made any money. I was able to do endorsements and like a segue off of powerlifting, but powerlifting itself paid me very little money. So that's what you have to, to think about. Okay, powerlifting is not paying me a bunch any money when I'm starting out. So I don't want to get hurt and lose my job and lose my livelihood. But the more you fall in love with it, the more you're going to invest in it, the more you're going to be willing to risk. So each person's going to have to make that choice on, well, if I break my leg and I am a line worker at a factory and I can't stand for three months or two months, I'm out of money. I could lose my house. Whereas if someone's a little more financially set and they were like, hey, man, I got money. I sold my business. You know, I'm staying efforting. You know, in my 40s, I sold a business and I can go live with Mark Bell and I can just focus on powerlifting for the next three years. Then that's a wholly different, totally different scenario. But do it for a little bit and build a solid foundation, build your core, build your grip strength. You know, I've got so many videos on YouTube that are just free about uh, core execution and movement execution. You know, McGill's got great books on it. I've got books, 1020 Life and Gift of, Gift of Injury. Study and read and start slow and build a good foundation and then decide like how much you want to go in for it or with it. But each person is going to be different. You know, some people you're like, hey, you know, don't go all the way in with it just yet. And then before you know it, they're consumed with it and they're done with it in six months because they hurt themselves. And, you know, I kind of just let people do their own thing, but they should start slow and not not go all in right away. Make sure it's something they want to do. And you should be aware of the inherent risks too of the injury and the uh, ups and downs of the the mental aspect of it. You get depressed when you get hurt or you get depressed when you miss a big lift because you put a lot of effort into it. And, you know, that's just part of the ups and downs of powerlifting. So let's try it out and figure it out and see if you like it. Yeah. I didn't know Mark Bell was operating an orphanage for, for injured powerlifters at his house. <laughs> <laughs> that's good that he's doing that, you know, giving back to the community. But how yeah, do you, Mark, um, Mark and Stan connected there and Stan went and stayed with him for a while while he was like going all in with powerlifting back in the day. Oh, got it. I didn't know. Uh, that. I thought yeah, you were really joking, but I guess it's not a joke. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, he he did. He did. Stan sought out Mark and a few other people and trained in super training. And that's when he really made that push in powerlifting for those couple of years. So each each person is going to be different in their aspect of life, you know. Well, do you feel like the more advanced a particular field gets, like um the harder it is to become a champion, and thus more inherently the uh, the more commitment you need to do and the more risk there is to it. Uh, just like anyone in new in a field, you know, you can be kind of like a dummy and still be a standout, like the initial MMA days. Now you look back at those fights and you're like, oh man, these guys don't know like anything they're doing, you know, compared to the guys today. But the yeah. guys today, even that seemed to be really good back in the day would be pretty terrible today kind of thing. So yeah, everything's speeding up so much. Uh, the numbers of the deadlifts that people are hitting right now, it's it just kind of come from nowhere and it's kind of out of the stratosphere right now um i what's the what's the best way to answer this give me that question again let me hear it again the best well, way again, what do you feel like the more advanced a field becomes inherently just the more commitment that's required also just the more uh 
you have to be extremely myopic. And then also the more yeah. risk and the less balance there will be in the person's life and less health uh, there will be in the person's life as well. Just to even have a chance of even making it somewhere to the top, not even like the number one guy, but even in the uh, somewhere in the vicinity of like the top, the top competitors. You got to be super dedicated, man. And everything's gotten so much more competitive. MMA, like you're talking about, CrossFit, powerlifting has exploded in the last few years. So absolutely, man, the better that everyone's gotten and the more technology that's available and the more, um, you know, supplement use and drug use that's become available, uh, experimental supplements and such. There's a lot of people out there that are just dumb. And I, and I mean this, I'm not, I'm not generalizing saying people, people are, are dumb that, that power lift. I'm saying there's people out there that are ignorant of the potential side effects for things and they don't care either, right? You've been 22 years old before. I, I was about 20 years ago and I didn't care. I didn't see myself living to 35 or 40. So these kids are dumb and they're ignorant, they're naive. And they think, I don't care if this stuff is gonna, you know, I don't care if this is made for a, for a dog to um, to go into heat, right? Like check drops, I, I don't care because I just wanna get strong and get my name out there right now. And all these kids have the same mentality, it seems like, and the numbers keep going up and going up and going up. And some of these kids can make money from uh, like online and they can actually go all in with powerlifting. So some of the people that, that can do all those things, man, they're behind the eight ball a bit. So I'm not saying it's right or wrong for them to like go all in with the supplements or the drugs or the focus, but man, it's becoming harder and harder to be more competitive because there's so many more people in powerlifting now and it's got a broader reach with social media and some of the shows that it's been featured on and some of the stars that, you know, use some of the elite FTS equipment and Kabuki strength getting into the NBA and NFL with his bars and stuff like powerlifting is a lot bigger than it's ever been by a lot in a bigger spotlight. So it's going to attract more people than would get into it before. Therefore, you're going to have more athletes coming to powerlifting instead of fat old people like it used to be, right? Fat old people, powerlifting slow, you know, unathletic people. So now you got some true athletes that are competing in powerlifting that are gifted. So if you're going to climb to the top in powerlifting and be anywhere near like a top five guy in your weight class or whatever, I'm not even talking about the all-time list, but just current top five guy, you're going to have to make a lot of sacrifices. It's going to be unhealthy. It's going to be potentially dangerous. And the ante gets upped every year, it seems like, where it just keeps going up and keeps going up and keeps going up. And, and I, I don't know. I know people even in the 80s and 90s were pretty crazy with some of their dosages and some of the stuff they did and how they trained. I imagine now it's crazier than ever, especially with people not knowing what they're doing and just not caring. Are kind of like um, younger deaths as common in powerlifting as it is in bodybuilding? Because you see a lot of like bodybuilders dying in like 45, like maybe 50 max, and just a lot of them kind of pass away out of nowhere, although they look great and stuff of that sort. You're like, man, what happened to that guy? It seems like uh, I can definitely attest that like pro bodybuilders, pro bodybuilding seems like worse for your health than just being obese your entire life. You know, I could kind of honestly say that. Yeah, I mean, you got all that muscle that really stresses your heart versus an obese person that doesn't have all that muscle to oxygen, oxy, oxygenate, whatever that word is. Feed oxygen to the whole body with all mm -hmm. this muscle, 320 pounds of muscle versus a blob that doesn't even stress his heart ever. He might be fine for, for a bit of time, you know? 
Um, I haven't noticed the people passing away quite like they do in body uh, bodybuilding and powerlifting, but there are people that just beat the living crap out of themselves and and they they're hobbled over, their backs are gone, their hips are gone, their knees are gone. So I don't see so many people uh, pass away from powerlifting. I see more from suicide in powerlifting. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. A lot of older lifters, I knew two of them just in the last couple of years that committed suicide that were, you know, early 50s probably, and their powerlifting was over with, and they they took their own life, and it's unfortunate. The bodybuilders seem to just have like a heart attack or, or mm -hmm. something like that. Now, the the younger and, and amateur guys, not like the pro top guys that like a couple of those guys have died, you know, over the last few years, you got, uh, yeah, uh, three of them that I can think of. And um with that said, um, you have diuretics and such that contribute to a lot of the bodybuilders' deaths because they end up going, getting so dry and not drinking any water for sometimes a couple of days and doing the diuretics. There's been people here locally, a couple of them that have died from uh, like post-show dehydration and having a heart attack and stuff, the kidneys shutting down, having a heart attack or whatever. And um, so I've noticed that a lot more with bodybuilding than with powerlifting, but People abuse themselves with powerlifting and have the same type of stuff, I'm sure. But bodybuilding, there's just so many more people involved, right? It's just a, such a bigger sport, more mainstream. So it's going to attract more people. Therefore, you're going to have more people doing dumb stuff, I think. But the drying out and diuretics and cutting down last bit, to me, I think that's the most dangerous part. Because we do, do feel, have people that die pretty often from that. What do you feel leads to the higher suicide rates in, in bodybuilding? Like what type of... What type of psychology do you feel even kind of decides to go all the way in that sport? In powerlifting? In powerlifting, yeah. Yeah, so I think I think some people, and I can't speak for, for these two people that I know, uh, but I know a lot of people that when they when they lose that outlet, they, you know, they kind of just don't see like the next thing. So I think that um, one of them for sure was just kind of like you know my body's beat up i can't really lift anymore they turn to alcohol or drugs a bit and that makes them cascade and and backslide even more um i do think that the drugs could probably play a part in that for sure um and then who knows what's happening to the brain when you're squatting under a thousand pounds or 1300 pounds with all that pressure I, I don't know i could be having a bunch of tbis and just not know it um because it would it be that much of a surprise with this it, the color that my head turns when I'm in the hole with 1300 pounds that my blood pressure is probably extremely high and my heart is working really hard you know um it wouldn't be a stretch for something to blow or go or slip or something like that so uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we're creating some micro trauma in our brain that might lead to some dis depression or some um you know some uh you know multiple personalities or um you know the blues a little bit for people especially when you chase that adrenaline too so i, I think that, that there's something to be said and they're not going to measure this in power lifters because they've tried it before and the blood pressure was so off the charts they just shut down the experiment or the mm. measurements or whatever like thousand over 500 or something ridiculous like i don't even know like something stupid and they had to stop it immediately because they couldn't risk having this person die in the lab or whatever. But you know, it's got to be really high if someone uh, that's not even red could have 200 over 120. So what's this person have that's bright purple and red with 
1300 pounds on their back and wraps all over their knees and a compression suit pulling down on their shoulders and compressing their core and everything who knows what it could be at that point right gotcha so so i don't know but i, I think that um across the board with athletes whenever their thing is over whether it be junior sale and football whether it be uh you know someone like ken caminetti in baseball or, or someone like that when it when their time's over Maybe they're broke. Maybe they didn't spend their money well. Maybe they sacrificed their family during this time. Maybe they're addicted to drugs and alcohol. Maybe they just have mental, you know, deficits and problems. It, it seems to catch up with them when they're done with the sport. Like when they're in the middle of like competing and lifting or bodybuilding or baseball, football, they have that outlet. So there's always something to do tomorrow. Oh, I got a game tomorrow. I got to train tomorrow. But when that's over with, I know this for what, from what Junior Seau went through, like he was, he had no reason to live, you know, and he was just like, I, I don't want to be here anymore. So I don't know exactly why, but those are kind of a couple guesses to me. And, and powerlifting generally attracts mentally unstable people uh, to a certain extent to people that have anger, that want to just crush weight and be aggressive and stuff. So I think that that would probably pay, play a part too. And, you know, I'm not speaking as, as a psychologist. I'm just speaking from my experience. I've seen the the different personalities come into powerlifting and some get really wound up and unstable. You add in, you know, narcotics and you add in anabolic steroids and with someone unstable and taking a bunch of uh, supplements and lifting heavy and all the stress and everything, man, you have like a recipe for all kinds of crazy mm -hmm. stuff. Is, is narcotic use, you kind of mentioned that, is that just used recreationally just as a side thing or actually for performance reasons too? Well, legend has it that a lot of uh, the powerlifters in the 80s like doing speed. They like doing crank or meth or cocaine before. Uh, I've personally never done it. Uh, I would tell you, I'd be honest and tell you, yeah, dude, I I would hit a line of something before I'd go and lift, but I've never done any recreational drugs like that. Um, but as far as anything that would give me an edge, whether it be a lot of caffeine or a pre-workout or something that will just wind me up, a provigil, an Adderall or something like that, um, yeah, I would, I would take that. Uh, some people would get addicted to painkillers, taking crazy amounts of painkillers to lift just to get through it. You know, I've taken ibuprofen to lift. I've taken like a, a Percocet or a half a Percocet to kind of take the edge off, but we're not talking like some of the people that would do 30 or 50 Percocet pills a day because they're addicted to it and they have so much pain where they want to keep lifting. So you can see how a lot of this stuff could be a, a recipe for disaster when mm -hmm. you have a little bit of unstableness a crazy sport narcotics anabolics and then maybe some antidepressants mixed in there right with the person yeah there could be a lot of wildness going on well can you touch on the slippery slope of relying on uh painkillers to kind of mask you know the pain teacher or any kind of injury versus actually going appropriately and desensitizing the area and then kind of rebuilding biological resilience from there because i know that could be even for um, just people that aren't competing, that's like a common thing to do. And it's kind of a very quick, slippery slope downhill that basically leads to a larger injury uh, in a short enough, even long enough time frame. Yeah. So I don't think that pain meds or ibuprofen or even like an epidural or something, I'm not going to say, oh, that is bad no matter what, inherently bad. I think it's definitely misused. I think it's overused. But at the same time, you have some people that have an acute flare-up 
that don't have the tools that you have or I have. And if we were to say, no, you got to go see Eugene or go see Brian, we're not going to give you a shot. These people would never get out of pain. Okay. So some people are going to need a shot. They, they, they tweak their back at work or whatever. So I'm not going to say they're bad, but when the person is just relying on that shot after they've gotten out of the acute phase and they think that the shots or the pain meds are going to be the way to heal, we know that's just basically blocking the signal to the brain and the trauma is still happening. It's just numb and they're not, they're not feeling it. So as soon as that Percocet or ibuprofen or epidural wears off and they become heightened to that pain again, it's going to be super sensitized. Mm -hmm. so instead of relying on those medications, why not let it heal, stop picking the scam and let it desensitize, then slowly start building pain-free capacity. Now, if you've got to take some meds because you're really wound up and you're acute, you can't sleep. Like, I'm not saying meds are bad. I have my own line of CBD. Like It's a good product, but never am I going to say, hey, don't worry about fixing your back. Just take the CBD. No, they can be used concurrently, but at the same time, it's gonna, what you're doing is going to matter a lot more than any medication you're taking. So use the movement as therapy. Use it as medicine. People are just scared to take time off. They just think they can take medication, mask it, and keep keep plowing ahead. And that, in some cases, that's the worst case scenario. And I'm guilty of that, as talked about in Gift of Injury, that I kept getting my epidurals. I was taking medication and just continuing to train like a dummy. I was dumb. I was ignorant. So Dr. McGill opened my eyes to a lot of those things, and I had to remove the cause to build more tissue tolerance and then progressively start loading again, like you said a minute ago. But I had to learn that the hard way. And so I'm used to taking ibuprofen and getting shots and stuff. And then you're not feeling the pain. So it's not teaching you to move move around those areas. And the next thing you know, you're so sensitized, it takes a long time to get wound up. And it's an endless cycle of feeling a little bit better and masking it and then winding it up again. And it's a, just a continuum. Yeah. And then when we're coaching together, you actually uh, set a line that was a really big eye opener and a game changer for me. You probably didn't even give it two seconds of thought, but I remember I kept, I never had like a super serious back injury. It was more over like just constantly annoying, but I remember it would get better with you. And then I would go back to doing, you know, just being a dummy again and then kind of tweak it again. And then it would be in pain for like a week or two and then it would get better. And I'm like, oh, doing this. And then at one point you're like, you know, well, the good thing, Eugene, is you know, you're doing it to yourself. And that gives you all the power because if you're doing it to yourself, you can stop doing it to yourself anytime. Yeah. And I feel that is super powerful. And I feel, unfortunately, like in Western culture, especially, like people are, are adverse to that, to admitting that they're causing their own health problems off like pretty much 99% of the time, probably hands down. And you know, they're looking for these quick solutions, like getting shot in back or just taking painkillers or something of that sort. Yep. And it just never works because you never change the person that's causing all the problems. And then obviously the problems are going to keep coming back. And then all of a sudden, as, as Paul Check would say, you're you're on your doctor's like 401k or BMW plan, you know, or funding their kids' <laughs> education because you yeah. have you're just staying healthy enough to stay alive and having to keep coming back, but never actually come to a complete resolution of your of your problem. Can you can you also go over um this is kind of rewinding back a little bit but when you when you do have you know that serious like pretty much almost career ending or maybe a career ending injury um like what what kind of mental strategies did you use 
to not go down, you know, like a dark path, like some of the competitors you mentioned, because I know your injury was like, I don't know, for the listeners, you guys can Google uh, Brian Carroll's MRIs like before, and it literally looked like, I don't know, just his whole entire lower back was like shattered, basically. Yeah, it was, it was jacked up. So the mental, the mental aspect, I just lost you for a second. Sorry about that. The okay. mental aspect, so important. Okay. And what I did is I had to change my thinking. I had to change my thinking and my mindset to understand that I didn't know anything about healing my back and I needed to listen to everything that Dr. McGill said to me. Now, yeah, I, I considered doing rash stuff. I was angry. I was upset of going through the hamster wheel of going to this person, going to that person, never getting any answers, the whole nine. It's just, it's just so, it's just terrible, right? And what what I finally came to the conclusion, I'm going to go in there just like a complete beginner. Whatever McGill tells me to do, I'm going to do. And I'm going to focus with 100% focus. And I'm going to treat this as if this is my training cycle. So whatever he says, do bird dogs, I'm going to stick to it and do nothing else. If it's side planks, if it's resting for two, three months, that's exactly what I'm going to do. So I just changed my thinking and put the same amount of effort into what I was doing, although the intensity was like just a, you know, a, a tiny little bit of what it would be if I were training for a meet. And I just took it as my job. My job is to move well, wind down the pain, perfect my core work. And then when I have the next thing, I'm going to perfect that. Then I'm going to perfect the next thing. So I just had to have a shift in my own thinking of getting away from uh, the barbell is going to save me or an injection is going to save me or surgery is going to save me. And like you said a minute ago, it's brilliant. When you can empower the client, that's you. When you can tell them, hey, the good news is, you know what you're doing, avoid that for a while. And instead of here's a shot, you know, pay me $200. Well, while we do charge people for money, we're given or for consults, we're giving them tools to be able to continue to, to fix themselves for years to come. If it does happen again, you're actually mentoring them instead of just giving them medicine. And, and that's why I, I really like doing what I do. But just think of the simple thing that I said to you. Well, the bad news is you're causing it yourself. The good news is you can stop doing that and then allow yourself to feel better and then maybe re, you know, put that back in there in a couple months from now or a year from now. Try it out then. And then you're like, dude, well, I don't even have to be in pain. Do I really have to back squat right now? Not really. Let me do some modified goblet squats or front squats. You know what? My legs look even better now that I've been doing front squats. Mm -hmm. I'm glad this kind of happened because I learned a little bit more about my back and my physique with this. But if someone just says, no, nah, I don't do that, we got to talk about it and understand the context for it. But yeah, empowering the client is key. And just uh, instead of just saying, here's some medicine, here's a shot, here's some cookie cutter stretches. No, we, we try to empower the client to teach them to be their own, uh, they're on fishermen instead of just catching them fish and giving them to them. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. I'm curious, have you ever been confused by the labels in the grocery store? In Yevgeny's book, he demystifies the difference between caged, cage-free, free-range, and pasture-raised meats. He also covers how to avoid GMOs, source high-quality water, fish, supplements, and other related topics. It's a beautifully illustrated, non-technical read that comes with a comprehensive video series and other extended learning materials. 
Jump on Amazon and check out the book titled Anti-Factory Farm Shopping Guide by Evgeny Trefkin. Now let's dive back into the podcast. Yeah, I don't know if this part was tough for you, uh, but I kind of gave up at a certain point. You know, I did exactly what you did. Go to the chiropractors, go to the PTs, watch this YouTube video, that YouTube video, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But it never seemed to kind of resolve over time. But for me, it's like... Um, when, you know, I ran into like your work or McGill's work, et cetera, et cetera. It was just tough to accept initially that, first of all, like the way I was training was unsustainable, you know, and then because that's like all, you know, at that time, but then once you learn more about the human body and more about, you know, proper periodization, et cetera, then you kind of realize like, Hey, you know, I could have done this smarter all along, but in the beginning, it was just tough to accept. Like, first of all, you think like, Oh shit, that means like, I really can't train optimally ever again you know what i mean that's kind of like how i heard it because i just yeah. once again didn't know any better but i didn't yeah. know if you if you kind of had that happen to you when you know mcgill would say like oh you know don't train for three months it's like oh dude that's sometimes like a death sentence especially for like type a personalities and someone that's it's like a career is like your career for example you know well I knew this much. I knew that my way had failed so many times. So I was already really open to like trying something different. I knew the success he's had with other clients. Everything he said to me made sense. So I said, I can't lift anyway right now. So, and, and that's what I don't understand about some people that come to me. They, they bitch and complain or get mad when I say, Hey, take a couple months off. And then they're feeling better after a month. And I'm like, hold on. You said number one goal was to get better and feel better and not have pain day to day. I did that. We did that. We accomplished that. Now you want to get back to bodybuilding or powerlifting, continue to listen to me and don't just jump back into lifting yet and rebuild more capacity and such. So I couldn't even lift at the time regardless. So I knew I needed to do something different and take time off because I was in, you know, I had no capacity to, to train. So I needed to take time off. And what I had done in the past hadn't worked. So to me, it was like, well, might as well, because right now the way I'm heading, keep beating my head against the wall. I'm never going to be trained, be able to train again. So what's three months. Mm -hmm. What do you, what do you find personally is the toughest about coaching back pain clients? And do you find more like athletes tougher to train more just like the average, you know, corporate workers tougher to train? I know there are unique challenges with each, with each category. I like this question. Okay. In my experience, the toughest people to coach through uh, back resilience, coaching or training has been physique athletes and bodybuilders. Oh, interesting. They've been, so people like, for instance, men's physique competitors and bodybuilders, like on the pro level, these guys, what I've understood and, and seen is they're absolutely addicted to training, but not in a good way, not addicted to training in, um, man, I just got to train today because I don't feel good unless I train. Um, you know, I feel my shoulder gets janky. I don't feel good mentally. No, they, they have to train because if they don't train, they're going to shrink and get a little bit smaller over a couple of weeks to a couple of months. And why, why is it so tough for them? Because everything is about appearance for a bodybuilder. Their ego is so freaking big. And I mean that with respect. You've got to have a big ego to want to paint yourself up and chisel your abs and wear makeup and want to look good and oil. 
So I'm not, I'm not even like jesting about that at all. I'm just saying that the ego has to be big. So I understand that. But at the same time, you have to initially deflate their ego so much. And they push back when you tell them, Hey, you can't be, you can't be doing legs three times a week. You can't be doing upper body five times a week, you know, two a days. And a lot of the time I have to decide to not work with them because they don't want to take a couple months off. They want to feel better after a month or so and get right back to training or somewhere like two weeks, a week and a half sometimes. Oh, I, you fixed me. I feel so much better. Well, I'm glad you're crediting me for getting you a little out of a little bit of pain, but you're not fixed. This mm -hmm. is going to be an ongoing thing for a while that you're going to have to manage. And when I tell them not to start training yet, they push back. Well, I don't have any pain. All right. Well, here's what I think you should do for the next couple of months. Um, and if you don't want to follow that, I'm not sure what I can tell you, but this is what I think in my experience with what you have going on, you're going to need to heal over the next year. And if you jump back into bodybuilding in the next month or two, I see you having a bunch of relapses and I have to just leave it at that sometimes. Whereas other people, um, it might be a physique athlete or it might be a, um, UFC fighter, or it might just be a, a general lay person. Man, they will follow everything you say to a T. They'll take notes. They'll give you good feedback. And they end up being the, the biggest professional you ever work with. So I I've been lucky to have some people that really surprised me. Hmm. But then you have some people that really disappoint you, too, that literally don't put an effort forth. Like I had one kid that, that, that I, I saw that I didn't want to see he was a baseball player. And he basically told me, Oh, you know, I have an update for you. I got to be honest with you. After I saw you for the consult, I went home and didn't do anything. And uh, then I started doing some of the big three that you showed me Then I quit doing that and just rested because I was depressed. But unfortunately, every time I went to do something physical, my back started hurting again. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, because you didn't do anything to build more capacity than you just get up and try to go running somewhere. Of course, it's going to hurt, but you got pain free. You just didn't follow the directions. Mm -hmm. so those are things that bother me when we just basically waste each other's time, when they just don't want to listen, or the people that are Google Google masters and they know everything about chiropractors and physical therapy and adjusting, and they know everything with their back. Those are some of the people that are difficult to deal with. You know what I mean? That, that know enough to be dangerous, but truly don't know anything. I find like, honestly, I just highly recommend for people not to get any advice from any social media or online source, not because some of the people, some of the people could actually be extremely credible. Just the only problem is they never met you. They're just talking like we're talking now to like a broad audience who knows who's even listening to this. You don't know their specific situation and nature is like a novelty generator. Everyone's, everyone is different. Not even the, they're not even too droplets of water that are the same on the entire planet moreover moreover human beings and back pathologies i mean back pain is such an umbrella term it could mean yeah. like a million things that are causing their their back pain it's like saying oh my car is not starting oh, okay yeah. like dude it could be like a million things of why your car is not starting and then imagine like getting advice from online from a person that never met you is basically like kind of showing up at the doctor's office and they don't even talk to you and they're like here just take this medication it's like, dude, yeah, you don't even you don't even know my situation. <laughs> so my situation, or even my story that led to the situation. Like, how are you even giving me this medication already? You know, it's kind of what they would do with, uh, you know, they could pretty much cover just about anything with some of the protocols like uh, Z-Pak, prednisone, uh, Percocet, and um, ibuprofen. Right? That would like cover 
rashes, pain, insomnia, or what, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's kind of, it's unfortunate that a lot of the time that's basically what you get when you go to a doctor or one of these online gurus that are really good at marketing, but you message them and it's like a huge disservice to the person because you message them and say, Hey, Joe Blow, I've been a big fan of yours. I read your books and they, what should I do for my back? Oh, you got to follow my back program and you got to do this. So they blindly, you know, after saying my back is tight, well, they could have just been sitting down for the last week or had a long flight, or they might uh, have a true disc bulge or something. And, and, and they're, they need to be treated two different ways. One, you, you know, stretching might help a little bit of a tight back if it's muscular or resting it. Whereas a disc bulge, man, that might be a really tricky thing for a while. So whenever they have these generic programs to do reverse hypers, do stretching, you know, do Jefferson curls, no matter what back pain you have, it's really irresponsible. Because like you said, with the analogy of the car, it could be something as simple as they haven't put the key in the ignition, you know? <laughs> Or it might you be something kind of it, it might oh, be something kind of stopping, you know? It's and like, did you people, try to turn the car on? Oh, right. No. <laughs> that people are like, my back hurts, you know, when I do this. Well, do you have any stiffness in your core? Try this now. Oh, okay. It doesn't hurt at all. I'm supposed to have a little core stiffness when I lift. That might be like putting the key in the ignition for some people, whereas other people, they stiffen and their pain gets way worse. Then we got a little more complicated uh, mm -hmm. mechanism there. We might have some bone trauma, might have a disc bulge. It could be a bunch of different things. Then you have to start peeling the onion back. But exchanging a couple messages with someone on Instagram or YouTube yeah. or Facebook. That's a like red flag for people. sure. I would love to be able to just dispense programs to people that are in a bad spot, that don't have very much money. Brian, what should I do for my back? I would love just to give them a template, but it's going to end up making more people worse than helping people. And I'm not going to do that. Yeah. People don't know, but it takes like, you know, a good, like one to three hours to really thoroughly assess a person. And in my opinion too, like, even if you have two people that have like an L5 disc bulge to the posterior right side or whatever, it looks like on paper, exactly the same. But if you evaluate also, you know, the belief system, the behaviors that led to that injury, which have to be addressed too, or that injury is going to keep rehappening. It could be completely different from this guy versus this guy. And thus their approaches and protocols would be completely different as well. And a lot of times you don't even know those intricate details until you've already started coaching the person for a little bit. Um, and you touched on another important thing in terms of like, I fell into this loop and you kind of helped wake me up to it. But when people are out of pain, they confuse that for being healed. And yeah. I did that for a couple of cycles before I realized that's definitely not the case. It just kind of definitely means you're just out of pain, but the area is still very sensitive. It's still very fragile, most likely. And it's going to take probably many years to fully gristle over and solidify enough for you to be like really hardcore in your workouts again and be confident that it's not going to, it's not going to shatter again, basically, you know? Yeah, you're exactly right. You, you want to build more capacity slowly, let it gristle by stimulating it and then resting it. And uh, man, some people can become pain-free in a week or two with some nasty back pain, right? End plate, end plate fractures or trauma, bone edema, disc bulges, and they, they're so movement dependent with their back pain. Some people, once they stop moving and let that pain settle, it, it, it can go away for a while. That does not mean they're healed and they're just, you're clear to go back and deadlift and squat now, do whatever you want, which some doctors will say. 
oh, you're fine. Go back and just squat light. Well, Doc, what does squat, squatting light mean? You know that I squat 1,300 pounds, right? What? Oh, I'm thinking, oh, so go lighter. Just go to like 600. Well, 600 is plenty of weight to destroy a back. It's like there's no context <laughs> with training light. 50%. Go do yoga or Pilates is another one they say. Okay, a couple people will do great with yoga and Pilates. They need to mobilize a little bit. They don't have a disc bulge. But other people, you do that, you're going to grow their disc bulge. You're going to destroy their back. And then you've done a huge disservice because you didn't know what you're talking about. So I, I hear people go to the doctor and they're told you're fine or you're effed. Well, you're not either one of those. You're in the middle a lot of the time. You can get past this, but it's going to take some work. But you're definitely not fine. You have damage. You know, all your, all your signs for the assessment are showing that you have a disc bulge or, you know, facet trauma. But you're not done. You know, you have things you can do pain-free. Let's work to get you pain-free. And the doctors tell people some ridiculous stuff. Like, you're screwed. Like, why in the world would you ever tell a patient that they're screwed? you never seen people get better before a doctor? You're a freaking doctor. Probably with his advice, not. <laughs> you know? So, so I want to ask, I want to ask you something. So if you were in charge of the medical system, what, what are the big things that you would change? Oh, it's like, it's pretty simple. I wouldn't really change anything with the medical system in and of itself. But what I would do is it, take a small fraction of what universal healthcare costs annually and just really, for lack of a better phrase, brainwash kids into real health principles, basically elementary school through high school. College isn't even necessary. And it's not like they need to be experts or masters. Just have like a good foundational understanding, which is more than enough for pretty much 99% of the people for what they're looking for out of their life. Right. And what do I mean by those principles? It's very simple. Like, uh, you know, using movement as medicine, how to properly use and manage a physical body, what real food is, like the importance of sleeping, you know, like eight hours a day between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. Central nervous system management is huge, especially in a fast-paced world. Uh, and then, you know, nonviolent forms of communication would definitely help resolve a lot of stresses and problems in the world and more importantly to identify like who they are as a person and then live true to those core values because if you don't know who you are like what do you know what to do in life you're going to definitely get into the wrong jobs wrong sports wrong relationships and it's going to be a disaster for you from start to finish and then you'll have kids and basically they'll be exactly the same way and then there's generational trauma that's passed from one generation and it's just like compounds you know, mm -hmm. generation after generation. And it, it's a small fraction of what medical drugs and medical procedures cost. And it'll actually, ironically, when people are health conscious and know how to take care of themselves, you can still have a universal healthcare program because basically no one's going to use it outside of emergencies, car mm -hmm. accidents and stuff of that sort. So you mm -hmm. can have the best of both worlds. Of course, there are a lot of people um, that make money out of people that are oblivious to what real health is. I mean, people think, you know, being on a myriad of medical drugs, being sick all your life, you know, needing to take like a bottle of Xanax and have five cups of coffee just to have enough energy to go to work in the morning is like totally <laughs> normal. Yeah, it's, it's normal, but that mm -hmm. is what pathology 101 looks like. I mean, it's very right. common, but not normal at all. It's just pathology yeah. that's been normalized. Mm -hmm. Sad to see uh super sad to see but 
that's just how it is. I mean, the solutions are just very easy. Maybe it won't happen in our generation, you know, but if they did that re-education program in the school system, because at the end of the day, I stayed health conscious my whole life. I grew up with my grandma on an off-grid farm for the first 10 years. And then my dad was a very competitive wrestler that understood the importance of rest, how to take care of your body, you know, how to eat. I only ate like basically whole food my whole life. I never got into soda or fast food or any of that stuff. And that's how I learned, you know, but if the teachers were the same way, the kids would be the same way because leadership always sets the tone. And the problem today is just a lot of our also health professionals aren't healthy. You know, we talked about this before. And obviously, it's kind of like the blind leading the blind in this case. Mm-hmm. And um, no wonder no one's getting, no one's really getting better at a lot of, at a, the things they do. And then we, t- we talked about, you know, visiting a doctor these days. The, the average visit to a doctor lasts now two and a half minutes. <laughs> yeah. It, it feels like sometimes we're doing back assessments with people, even an hour feels a lot of times not enough depending on the person's situation, you know? And there are obviously follow-up coaching sessions which are included, which are never included with the doctor. They see you two and a half minutes, four months later, they might do a catch-up. I don't know how the hell they even remember you. You know, they probably seen a couple hundred people since then uh, for another two and a half minutes altogether. I just, I don't know how they even remember you, you know, personally. Well, I think here's where I think that I mean, I love I love the idea, but I think that the powers that be don't want people to be healthy. Yeah, it's obvious, you know, because it's a huge money making racket, basically. So I think it's everything from the people that run the businesses to the politicians that they don't want capable, healthy, strong people. And I think that, you know, I'm I'm not some weirdo that is oblivious to, to what's going on or even some conspiracy theorist, but it's pretty obvious they don't want they don't want Americans to be strong and independent, whether it be fossil fuels or whether it be uh, being able to live off the grid and live off the live off the land. Um, they want everything to be electric. Therefore, there's no when you don't have gas engines, you don't have that type of independence. You're dependent that that electric motor can be turned off. You know, they can they can stop your ability to be able to get electricity. But if you have gas motors, it's a little bit different. But I think that the the government in general don't does not want a strong, um, potentially uh, uh, society that will push back when they don't like something. They want some people to be feeble and just kind of go along with whatever's going along at the time. Having a lot of people on government assistance, people unhealthy and dependent on the government, which gives the government more power. And I think that's a big problem. They don't want strong healthy people being taught these principles in, in, in school. They want the opposite of it almost. Look at the school lunches, look at the recess, you know, look at look at the the, the playground compared to when we were kids and, and compared to now. I think it's pretty obvious that they don't want to teach these principles because like so many other things, the politicians don't want to fix this. Yeah, exactly. And like, for example, do you know any... Um... I mean, no absolutes, I'm pretty sure they exist, but all the great healthcare providers I know work outside of insurance, which makes your insurance freaking pointless outside of emergency situations. It's like, even when I, to catch up on, just to see how my back was healing, I had an MRI done two years ago. And because I didn't meet my deductible, it would have been 1300 bucks with my insurance. But without it, if I paid cash, it was 300 bucks. And I'm like, dude, okay, I'll just pay cash. Although I pay for my insurance already, you know? 
But I understand if I do land in the hospital and it's super major, it's probably going to be a couple hundred K. And of course, the insurance would be beneficial then for sure. But it's yeah. just like, you probably don't work with insurance. McGill doesn't work with insurance. I don't work with anyone that's giving you like a proper assessment, which takes like two to three hours minimum, doesn't freaking work with insurance. Paul Check doesn't work with insurance. Yeah. Uh, because it's like so. insurance, all insurance does is like, here's some pills. That's it. Yeah. And 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 they will approve or decline to cover certain things. And they there's no there's no billing code for counseling. So I, I was talking to a, um an anesthesiologist here that does uh, back injections for people, right? And uh, he was saying, all the stuff you do is right. And he goes, the reason why I don't research and try to coach people after their injections is because there's no billing code for counseling. Mm -hmm. So therefore, they're not going to give, you know, good tips to the, the patient because any time that they're talking to them and giving them information is off the clock, basically. Well, in that situation, if I was like a doctor or anything of that sort, I'm like, hey, you know, you could take these high blood pressure medications or pain medications, whatever, but hey, you got to go see Brian Carroll and do this nine week or 12 week or whatever yeah. program to educate you on how to stop causing your own pain, basically to improve your lifting technique. Or if you're just average at home mom to move better with your kids and doing the chores and stuff of that sort, uh, because, and then make it clear, like, that's the only way you're going to stay out of pain. Maybe this surgery might get you out of pain, but in order to keep staying out of pain, you're going to need to do all of these steps. And do you understand that? And they'll be like, yes. And then it's up to them, you know? Yeah. But unfortunately, as you know, Brian, most people aren't going to even do that, you know, even when the answer is obvious until like the pain teacher is so great, they have no choice. And then they'll probably just go for another surgery and then be totally effed up and then blame it on their genetics. Maybe their IQ, I would say their low IQ is definitely genetics, but they they could have for sure. I guarantee you, like anyone listening to this with back pain, if you go to Brian Carroll, it's probably a good 99% chance, uh, especially like if you're just an average gym goer not trying to squat like 1,300 pounds or anything, that you can get out of your back pain and live like a great life and still lift with a lot of intensity, you know, whatever, go hiking with a lot of intensity. I guarantee you it's... Once you know what you're doing, it's not like mega complicated, especially once you become really in tune with your body, which I feel is another problem. Just the average American is so myopic these days, so overworked. So uh, like Robert Kawasaki mentioned in one of his podcasts, the average American has like only a thousand bucks to their name, like 75. I think he mentioned 75 or 80 percent of Americans like just that alone would cause you to be in a fight or flight situation all the time because you're like basically one small car accident or car mishap away from bankruptcy for the most part, you know, like you can't well, even well, get not even like unlikely, unlikely scenario to happen. Like you need new tires on your truck. Well, that's going to be a grand if you have yeah. a truck, right? Uh, yeah. God forbid you're an offender vendor and have to front some money to get a rental car for a while, or you have to like, depending on what kind of insurance you have, you might have to front some things or come out of pocket and then they reinstate you, right? Like insurance is different with, with different companies, but you're right. A thousand dollar that, you know, that's all you have in the bank. No wonder you're, you're running around panicking all the time and eating fast food and trying not to spend very much money on yourself and your health and investing and stuff. Yeah. I, I, that's scary to think about, you know, and, and probably, you know, 90% don't have more than five grand. Yeah, probably. I mean, probably. 
And it's like when you're in that fight or flight situation, your central nervous system is so max, it makes it tough to heal from injuries because definitely your sleep is shitty. You know, that for sure will really elongate your recovery time if make it impossible for you to recover at one point. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, um, even if they come to you, you know, it's like they're so burdened in life. It's hard to really get them to slow down and reflect on what they did and then kind of also strategize and how do they, how they can go about you know, their life goals more sustainably as well, uh, because you have to slow down and and be at peace to really kind of see things clearly. So there's there's that obstacle as well. And honestly, I don't know if it's, it kind of seems like it's getting worse. Like it's even getting more fast paced. I don't know, maybe that could be bias on my part, but I don't know if you're seeing that. And I know you, know you have two kids coming around. I just wonder how fast paced it's going to be when they hit like 18, for example, you know? It's really fast paced. And I think the uh, technology and our phones and our computers and everything are just making people are trying to do so much more in a day instead of just like two projects at work. They got to do this and they got to do that and they got to do all these things. And then, you know, kids start earlier now with some sports. They're doing travel ball at five, five years old, travel baseball. It's like I, I didn't even start playing T-ball till I was five. Like we played a game at like once a week on Saturday morning. That was it. We weren't practicing four days a week and traveling to this and doing that. Like things have just gotten way out of control. It seems like. Yeah. Well, I think like the reason for that is college entrances have gotten a lot more competitive. I felt they were competitive even back in my day, you know, but now it's like, they're like through the roof competitive. So it's like now kids that have to be like an all-star in three different sports and a straight A student and have work experience and basically live 50 years of experience in like, 17 years of life, you know, before they even apply for college and stuff of that sort. Um, And then I don't know, I don't know, having said that, what's your take on um, the social media space and back pain these days? Helping, not helping, I feel for the most part is just confusing people personally from my observation and kind of leading down the, the wrong path. Yeah, it's confusing people because the biggest marketers will have the most reach and they say, do these five stretches for back pain. And then people are doing it and making themselves worse. And then, you know, one out of a hundred or so will get better from it. And they're like, this is awesome and confuse more people. So it's definitely not good. And you can't, you can't do an assessment on social media. You can only get a couple key points across. And so I do it to help try to educate people and get people to read more in depth on articles and videos and such. But for the most part, people, people are, um, using social media and it's not helping people with their back pain at all. Unfortunately, when people advertise a quick fix, you know, you got to veer away from that immediately, but it's, it's not helping. And it's just so oversaturated with people that just don't know what they're talking about. That are good marketers that, you know, you're going to see their stuff more because they're good marketers and they have the algorithm and all this stuff, but it's not helping people. That's for sure. Yeah. And for the listeners, I'm telling you, like, you can't expect just to watch free content online without the person meeting you and knowing your specific situation and expect that to help you. You're just relying on dumb luck. There's maybe one out of 200 chance that it would help you, if even that. And then on top of that, dumb luck will never help you stay injury-free long-term ever because you don't know what's causing what. (laughs) So eventually you will get re-injured. Your only real hope is really kind of like hiring someone like Brian Carroll or doing the due diligence on, for example, becoming your own back mechanic, but just understand you're going to need to 
spend a lot of time reading material, actual scientific journals every single week. You're going to have to probably take courses eventually. And then eventually you're going to hire someone like Brian Carroll or something of that sort to help touch up some loose ends for you. And that's really, honestly, I mean, I hate to, to say it that way, but it's really honestly the only way they're going to get better. Yeah. Uh, because you're not going to get better watching random stuff on YouTube or Instagram or sorry, you're just not. And if you were ask yourself, why do you keep re-injuring your back? If it yeah. works, why, why, why do you keep re-injuring your back? You know? Um, and that's, that's really the only way you could become your own mechanic and do all those steps I mentioned. And, or you could just go up front if you are super busy and it's not like a super passionate topic of yours, but you do want to get better. You could just hire someone like Brian Carroll right away and it'll definitely fast track your progress. But even then I would still recommend, you know, lightly reading a lot of material and educating mm -hmm. yourself and how to be especially more in tune with your body and the various ways your body communicates with you on if something is going wrong, stuff of that sort. So exactly. And a lot of people can get better from back mechanic and gift of injury alone, but then some people don't want to be bothered with it. They're businessmen, they travel a lot, they have families. They'd rather you go through it with them and, and tell them what to do and then just learn that way. Other people want to get started and, and they can get it done on them uh, on their own, and that's awesome. A, a lot of people are able to do that, but then there's quite a few people that can't either. So um the first thing is to get the books read it apply in the books see if you get better if not go up and escalate from there go up the chain from there yeah well are there are there any other topics you want to you want to cover today um no i think man we, we talked about the the health industry which is a big you know crap show right now we talked about people getting better and how the steps to do that read back mechanic, read gift of injury, reach out to someone that's qualified. I, I help a lot of people. Some people are going to need an in-person assessment, uh, although I can help a lot of people virtually. And um, man, you got to spend time with people. So if your clinician is not spending uh, at least an hour to hours with you, and if they're doing a 15-minute eval, 15-minute evals, they're not even going to know what's going on in your life in 15 minutes, much less where you are, where you're going, where you've been, all those questions, how you hurt yourself. What are your goals? We might talk for an hour about your goals because uh -huh. that's a big part of where you're going. Because if your goals aren't attainable or realistic, then your plan is going to fail anyway. So there's a lot mm -hmm. to talk about. So I, I enjoy helping people, man. So I appreciate you having me on here, man. Always good to talk with you. And let's do another one in a couple of weeks. If you have more topics you want to discuss, uh, more back pain stuff or overall nutrition or strength training or whatever, just email me and we'll set it up again. Yeah, I actually, uh, on a on a closing question, I still see the popularity rise of um, stem cell injections for back pain. And I just, from everything I've researched and from the two friends that I have, that I've known that got it, it doesn't seem to work. I don't know if, it's, well, for disc injuries to be more, more in particular for damaged discs, okay? The passive tissue, the intertubrial discs, what what happens is like what I see is they typically don't work out a week before and they already are feeling pretty good. And then they get the injection and then they just don't work out a month after. And they obviously, if they just did that without the injection, that alone will probably solve a lot of their pain. And they're like, oh, it's because of the injection. But I'm like, no, man, it's literally because you're you're not doing the activity that's causing your pain. That's it. You're exactly right. And stem cells take the biological compounds 
like stem cells, PRP, they take three months to become active, to start working. So when they say, I already feel better, well, dude, what did they give you when you were there? Oh, you're taking Percocet. No wonder you feel good. You, you're you're high. You're high out of your mind right now, and it's taking the edge off your back pain. Plus, you've rested. Plus, you stopped doing those exercises that hurt you all the time. I haven't seen anyone uh, that I know of benefit directly from stem cells or PRP, especially intradisc. When they go in the disc like that, you're creating another fissure to go in there, another hole, which is another open fissure disc, which could be a disc bulb. So I, I don't recommend it, but PRP and stem cells elsewhere, I've seen some good things happen with that. The disc, like you said and described, it's a different animal, and it's not like a ball and socket joint, like a like a shoulder or something, where I've seen PRP and stem cells do miracles with, with those. Got it. Okay. Well, well, Brian, dude, it's good to see you. And thanks again for, you know, helping fast track my recovery process way back when, You're uh, welcome, man. which was done virtually for anyone listening, yep. you know, so um, great program. Thank you. It's good to see you as well. And um, thanks for that life changing line of if you're doing it to yourself, you could always stop doing it to yourself. And I use that in a lot of aspects of my life too, not just not just back recovery, because it totally applies uh, in many times. Cheers, brother. Good to see you. Okay. All right. And thank you, everyone. Take care. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. If you've ever had trouble losing weight, or you've lost weight, but still didn't have the ideal body or health you're aiming for, please feel free to reach out anytime and book an assessment. Eugene will work with you to cover your goals in detail, see what's holding you back, and go from there. In the meantime, Feel free to check out the countless testimonials on Eugene's website in the link below. In the testimonial section you'll notice everyone has various backgrounds, are of all different ages, and all have had different challenges in their life, but they all have one thing in common, they were all able to find their health and achieve their ideal body. You're also welcome to add yourself to the Facebook group in the link below. There you'll have access to the live videos that Eugene does weekly on Sundays and other helpful content. Thank you again for tuning in.